Well, okay, I'm Ray Armentrout, and I'm going to um, introduce the series that's coming up, and then make an announcement, and then uh, Lorraine Graham is going to introduce our reader, Rachel Loden. So, um, what's coming up is that next Wednesday, our Dean of Arts and Humanities, Seth Lehrer, who is a scholar and who is also, he's written about uh, children's literature and about the history of the English language and about, for instance, specifically the Harry Potter series, but apparently he has also published poetry, nonfiction, and reviews. And so he'll be here at uh, 4.30 on the 13th. And then on November 3rd, Stuart Dybeck is coming to read. He is an author of fiction and poetry who's published in many prestigious magazines and I guess he's the most impressively has won a Guggenheim and a MacArthur Genius Award. And then on uh, the evening of, uh, that also is at 4.30, Stuart Dybeck on, on uh, the 3rd of November, which is a Wednesday. And then on uh, the evening of, sorry I'm doing this so badly, it's a little dark for me to see, the evening of uh, November 9th, James Meats and Simon Patet will be presenting um, from their from their collection of previously uncollected poems by the um, great uh, dead <laughs> New York School poet James Schuyler, and I think they'll be reading a little bit of their own poetry too to go along with it. Great dead, among our great dead. <laughs> I couldn't think of a nice way to say that. <laughs> the late, that's it, the late great. <laughs> and then, um, the very next day, uh, on November 10th, I, at, at here at 4.30, Monica Yoon will be reading. So, before I turn it over to Lorraine, I just wanted to point out the books on the table, Rachel Loden has brought, has generously brought a supply of her own copies of Dick of the Dead, one of my favorite books, by the way, and she is selling them for below market price, $15, and I think that's as cheap as you can get them on the internet, or cheaper, and uh, we'll have someone there to, to sell them, and please buy them, they're great, and also think she won't have to schlep them back so, now, Lorraine is going to tell us more. Hello, everyone. Um, and maybe we can eventually adjust the light up here, but we can do it after, after the introduction. Um, I'm so happy that Rachel Loden is reading and that I get to introduce her. She's somebody's... Um, work that I've been following since her first book came out and of course bonded with a little bit and I'm so pleased that she's here. Rachel Loden is the author of Dick of the Dead, over there, which was a finalist for both the 2010 Penn USA Literary Award for Poetry and the California Book Award. It was one of the three most cited books in attention span 2009. The Poetry Project newsletter described it as oddly sublime and intoxicating. 
Loden's first book, Hotel Imperium, won the Contemporary Poetry Series competition and was selected as one of the 10 best poetry books of the year by the San Francisco Chronicle, which called it quirky and beguiling. She is also a recipient of a Pushcart Prize, a fellowship from the California Arts Council, and a grant from the Fund for Poetry. So I want to draw a parallel somehow between Rachel Loden's Dick of the Dead and Dante's Inferno, with Richard Nixon as Virgil, Rachel Loden as Dante, and the U.S. social political economy from 1969 to the present as hell. <laughs> but Dick of the Dead has more than one Virgil, and its hell isn't so neatly organized or so purely hellish. There's no one sole king or church or god to keep it in line. The more I think through my comparison, as entertaining as it is, it falls apart. Nixon doesn't lead us through this book, he lurks in it, along with Gwyneth Paltrow, Ezra Pound, Wallace Stevens, two clad psychotherapy patients and their German-speaking analysts, Lee Poe, Leonie Brezhnev, Raina Maria Rilke, Robert Creeley, the members of the Elks Club, William Blake, Ted Berrigan, fairytale characters, Elvis Presley, the Bible, and no doubt many others. When Rachel Loden visited our poetry workshop yesterday, she noted that all literature is written on the graves of other literature, and that's a paraphrase. That's certainly true of Dick of the Dead. Sometimes the poems in it are a eulogy for the 21st century, and sometimes they're like archaeological expeditions. The present and past coexist in horrifying, beautiful, and hilarious ways. Here in the United States, we don't have Roman roads and bridges. We have Nixon meets Elvis keychains. Rachel Loden knows these kinds of cultural artifacts are important. Please join me in welcoming Rachel Loden. Hearing that the, can you hear? Let's see. This one is recording me, and this one is amplifying me. Yes. So, uh, should I get them closer together, perhaps? Yeah, maybe. Hmm. Here. Let me bring this to you. Okay. And this can come away. Okay. Oh, you know what we will well, talk about it next time. Can people hear? Wave in the back if you can hear. Okay, great. <laughs> thank you. Well, thank you so much to to Ray and, and Lorraine for that amazing introduction I'm kind of blown away by the the uh, the uh, whole inferno thing <laughs> um, so I'm going to read first um, a few poems from my my new book uh, Dick of the Dead then I'll read a few new poems and a few from my first book Hotel Imperium which I also schlepped a few copies of over there and then I'll read a, f a few last ones from, from Dick of the Dead. <clears throat> Miss October, if I have to be a playmate in my time on earth, I want to be the girl of drifting leaves, cold cheeks, and passionate regrets. I think Hef loves October best. Because although he cannot say so, he is this close to death. December, in its stealth, has hung long spikes of ice around his sagging ears, his 
sex. So in October, I'll be the centerfold of gay pretense, the girl who says we're at our blondest and most perilously beautiful right before we check out of the manse. Soon, all Hef's dreaming will be Ash, his favorite pipe and smoking jacket, last vial of Viagra, safely under glass at the Smithsonian. When my shelf life here is done and all the damp boys stealing glimpses at the newsstands are old men, I want them to remember how many playmate months are gone, how many rooms stand empty, shutters drawn, the last girls slipped away in bright October. Long after this was in print, I I sort of idly did a Google search on Hefner and Smithsonian, thinking I wouldn't find anything, and guess what? (laughs) They've they've already got stuff. This next poem was inspired by a clipping that my father-in-law, who was a Finn, sent me from Finland. What the gravedigger needs, Teava, Finland. Overalls, rubber boots, leather gloves, iron spear to loosen up the frozen ground, lantern, spade, Length of rope, board to prevent mourners falling in, bicycle to go from grave to grave. We have to break into this thing like breaking into Fort, Fort Knox. And I've never drunk out of one of these infantile bottles where you have to squirt the water in here. <laughs> I'll be reading this next poem in the voice of Richard Nixon uh, with a a nod or apology to Wallace Stevens, uh, whom I'm travestying. Um, Millhouse, by the way, was Richard Nixon's uh, middle name, and Checkers was the Nixon family spaniel who figured so prominently in his Checkers speech and elsewhere in Nixon lore, I guess. Millhouse as king of the ghosts. A cold cellar hole at the end of the day when faithless pretenders cover the sun and nothing is left but my candidacy. There was dead checkers with her list of slights, slow tongue, green bile, black list, white mind, and April cruel as rumors of my demise. To be on the lawns where no helicopter lands, without that preening statuette of dog, that dog surrendered to the moon. And to feel that the light is a Key Biscayne light in which everything is lofted up to the elect and no returns need be tallied. Then there is no use in counting. It comes of itself all the blue votes turning a brilliant red, even in Chicago. The wind moves on the lawns and moves in myself. The last Iowa sweet corn is for me. The snows of New Hampshire drift up into an empire of self 
that knows no boundaries. I become an empire that fills the oleaginous pipelines of the earth. The bitch is still yapping by gravestone light, and I am whipped high, whipped up, sculpted higher and higher, cool as a sphinx. I sit with my head like a rushmore in space and the scrofulous hound smelling blood on my wings. I thought just a couple weeks ago about the fact that uh, I'd never thought of this when I was writing it, that, that Nixon probably did dream that one day he would be on Mount Rushmore. <laughs> so now I'll read a few new poems and... Um, starting with um, something else I need to apologize for, I guess, to Vallejo this time. Um, and this is Black Sun on a White Sun. And I wanted to mention that the Brooklyn in it is not the fashionable Brooklyn of today, but rather the, the Brooklyn I knew as a child. It's the place of my first memories, although I wasn't born there. I will die in Brooklyn in a shitstorm on a day that staggers like a memory. I will die in Brooklyn. Don't fuck with me. Maybe on a Tuesday, like today in February. Call it Tuesday, then, because today, Tuesday, even my humor I are on bass backwards, and never, like today, have I turned back against the freeway signs to see myself alone. Rachel Edelson is dead, least favored daughter, I killed her, and she did nothing to me. I beat her once with a cane and twice with a walker. Testimonies from the Tuesdays and the backwards bones, the bat shit loneliness, the breaks, the roads. <clears throat> and this is one that is in my conversation, I guess, with, with Brecht. Uh, and is forthcoming in, in Lana Turner. It's called Class War Has Been Given a Bad Name. <laughs> and it begins with an epigraph from Warren Buffett. There's class warfare, all right, and we're winning. <laughs> I hear that the best minds have been saying how, through a moral glass, the recent cock-up at the bubble club fell sadly short of standards. The former Fed chairman is disappointed, he tells the Times, and seems shorn of all exuberance, irrational and otherwise. The G8 finance ministers firmly deplore the lack of food security among the poor, redoubling their commitment to transparency and propriety. The senators from J.P. Morgan, Chase, and Citibank slap around a stone-faced CEO on C-SPAN and head out for drinks and dinner at the Palm. Only the Fox Populi stands up for capital, stretching out a vulpine paw to maul the secret bullshy treasury secretary down on his luck and on his knees. In short, Interested parties agree that the Madoffs and the tacky Aravists from Lehman Brothers and Goldman Sachs 
have, in the short term, botched things for the rest of us, and that while class war, the natural and necessary engine of the world to come, must not be abandoned to the sport of clowns and amateurs, it will require a delicate rebranding, and then our patience, as before. <clears throat> this one was actually also inspired by by a Breck poem, but um, one in which I think he's he himself is parodying somebody, Thomas Mann, I think, but um, who I guess he was annoyed with, and I was annoyed with his poem. So, um, it's sort of about chasing the muse, and so this is how to fuck an angel. I think his is you know how to make love to an angel or something like that. Um, First, which angel? Did you imagine that all angels were alike? If you think technique will cut it, somewhere a knocked-up angel dies. The bard in charge will tell you from behind. He likes to watch his angel tremble, her face and breasts pressed to the wall. He even brags about how many times he'll make her gasp for breath. It's not porn because she fakes it, only because he doesn't guess. An angel's just like any girl with needs. I can't tell you, ass clown, how to fuck an angel with all these feathers in my teeth. And this next one, sort of a risk to, for me to read. I was talking it over with Ray, and she said, do what scares you. And so I guess I'll read it because it scares me. Um, this is a um, few things probably to explain. Uh, the title is Rootless Cosmopolitan, which, means, which, which was a term of uh, an anti-Semitic term for Jew uh, in uh, the European theater, I guess, of the 20th century, uh, Stalin, and I'm not sure if it was uh, where else, but certainly in in, uh, Stalinist Russia. Um, And uh, something else to know, perhaps, is that I'm a red diaper baby, and I I was kind of happy that I finally got Karl Marx by name into a poem. Um, He's the, uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with with the phrase, opiate of the people I, I, I say it in German in the poem so and uh, he is the person I'm calling your Rebbe I don't know if that's too much intro but anyway rootless cosmopolitan who quit the US after the blacklist in Vietnam you asked to be scattered where the waters of the cedar and the Sammamish commingle in Lake Washington now six years on Your ashes toss and mumble in their cardboard box outside Toronto, where one of your two Canadian daughters uses them, perhaps, to stop a door. What did you expect, you lovely schmuck? Your yardside candle never lit. Forgetfulness, as you knew, is sweeter laudanum by far than what your Rebbe called das opium des folkes. Failed actor, Paul Newman of the sample case, 
strutting player of Tremont Avenue, the Bronx. We lay up grief toward what is moanworthy, more or less. Still, not Cordelia, I come out anyway to scatter all the little that is left of you, you not quite stateless refugee, you American. That poem actually only probably exists because of a poem I read by Leroy Jones when I was 16 that doesn't contain any words in this poem other than the word American. (laughs) But it was the rhythm of his poem that I heard. Now I'm going to read a few poems from my first book, Hotel Imperium. The Killer Instinct. No one can quite get over it. It is summer, and revenge lies sweetly in the fields with her legs open, her bow-peep, petticoats in ribbons. Et tu, cutie. (laughs) Not far away, alternate worlds queue up to be auditioned, chatting despairingly among themselves, but nobody's called back. Revenge, our wretched darling, shakes the straw out of her hair and shines herself into the reddest apple on the highest bough. Hanging tough through hundreds of such afternoons, worried into life by lightning's play on elemental soup, her stalwart heart will rise again, slough off loose brilliance like a firecracker and pack more melodies than Mozart. Love, revenge, remaindering. Is this the end? The world pumps on with all its gently pitiless music. Um, This next poem, um, years after it was published, the poet Lynn Din told me that he found it on a Wall Street blog, which really delighted me um, in light of uh, what's happened since I wrote it and uh, made me feel a little little prescient Um, my exchange this epigraph from Alan Greenspan irrational exuberance still the path of the tango was not strewn with roses 5,000 years might pass without a single dance the dejecta of great cities rolled out on a plane like dice or jewels And on my roof, the the sleigh bells of the gods, their tchotchkes curled inside a broken jar at Qumran, painted standing armies in the vaults of heaven. See also timeliness, untimeliness. Was it some corporate Sturmfuhrer saw a need for spreadsheets in a town like this with seven central bankers to look at? the sweet sea air buffeting the NASDAQ. Oh, irrational exuberance, you make me weak. Let me lie among the fallen orders, vermilion petals at my feet. And this is the first Nixon poem I ever wrote. It was written on the night that he was, that I heard that he was dying. Um, and I began to realize, much to my surprise, given the role that he played in my own childhood, that 
that I um, I wondered what it would be like to enter a new century without my old friend and nemesis. Premillennial tristesse. Nixon is slipping in and out of consciousness. My father sputtering in Canada 40 years after the blacklist. We hear there is this love that moves the world, the sun and stars, that makes the apple on the Kazakh bow fall for a reason. My age, my beast, my fingered rosary of disbelief. It seems that something red as love is bleeding through the centuries, that a reservoir of silky human grease is oiling those celestial machines. I don't want to see the zeros turn as on a clock about to wake us from a murderous dream, confetti falling helplessly into the fissured past. I don't want them to unload the gurney from the festooned ambulance, the revelers in all their unforgiving fury, the new patient in her bandages. And this is Variations on a Theme by Woody Allen with an epigraph from Woody Allen. The heart wants what it wants, as quoted in time. The heart gets what it gets, notwithstanding all the mornings waking with a yen for nectar and ambrosia, a wedding bower flush with all the pleasures of imaginable heaven. No midnight pickle run relieves the fitful hunger of the gravid man whose heart wants what it wants. Nor can devotion mined from the years of daily pressure like some gem indemnify against the sudden Stepford husband ralphing on a yellowed covenant. To wit, there is no logic to these things. And yet, the ice pick idles in the drawer, strings skitter and careen. A frenzy takes the ardent moviegoer. Oh, sweet cakes, meatloaf, dear. The heart's a mouth, and fuck its reasons. Now, some more from Dick of the Dead. <clears throat> The Nixon tapes. I had never read this in public before, but Ray's teaching it, and it kind of made me want to read it. It's kind of a mashup of a couple of fairy tales, um, The Twelve Dancing Princesses and Boots and His Brothers, with um, something even more sinister, I guess. <clears throat> the President, Haldeman, and Ehrlichman, Oval Office. Here we go. What in the name of Beelzebub are we doing on this one? I mean the axe that stands and sings all by itself, hacking and hewing in the wilderness. What about the spade that rings against the rock? 
Is Colson doing something about that? God damn, 12 princesses danced their shoes to tatters all night in a castle underground, and nobody is running their income tax returns? That son of a bitch at state, what are his plans? Whistle up my lists, Bob, and next to each name I want a little check, and you know what that means. What in the Christ? We need our own side burying these things. Props to the 20th century. Are you happy to be over 20th century? Yes, you had an apron full of monsters, but I miss you anyway. I miss my broken century more than I miss my ex, say. And I even miss him occasionally, since we tangoed through the crazy, jonesing throes of sweetest, darkest you. 20th century, we had such vain, glorious hopes for you. Smithereens, of course. But it feels strange taking up with other paler centuries, like this nymphet who imagines that her exquisite, laser-guided marketing campaigns would be enough to break me down or, worse, make me forget. I don't. Can't. Even your pyramids of empty skulls are with me yet, and with that other who remembers you as endless tea-soaked madeleine or dusty matzah of revenge, last dish of cottage cheese and ketchup at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Something I meant to say before I read it is that one of Nixon's favorite dishes was cottage cheese and ketchup. The toy box of my intentions, which begins with a prisoner in a paddy wagon, uh, me, actually, um, and goes from bad to worse. One, so many of them strewn about, let me say the title again, the toy box of my intentions. So many of them strewn about. Intention is what the prisoner understands as she hurtles through Manhattan with her jailer. And he, too, leaning on his steering wheel, separated from his dazed and reeling captive by a wire mesh grill, knows his way along the shining grid of streets, just as he knows the grander moral map of his intentions. Two, did you say intention? Intention that the wall of red-brown mud feels as it rolls over a darkened Panabahan village or that a song knows when it hears itself on television trying to die amidst the thousand tapping feet? Three, oh, 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 everything happens for a reason. Ella Shmayavara never gives us more nails than we can scarf down at one fairly elegant sitting. For intention, you toy, 
the boy president plays with you whenever somewhere in the world a wedding party is in sudden need of slaughtering. And when the one-way holiday makers light up their jet fuel cigarettes and sift down to earth in all their purity, intention smears them extravagantly with the dust of Jews and women. Og, I should say five, Og, so much lovely damned intention. When the stars come out, Loose hunks of the burning stuff fall off the mental dirigible as it dreamily plummets down. And all the while, sticky spider threads and ribbons tie me up in gaily festooned packages, packages which intention gallantly wrestles to the ground. And this is Belial. I, I wrote this poem after the Indian Ocean tsunami. Um, in a state of sort of existential rage and named it Belial, which is another name for the devil. Um, But I have to admit that I was also thinking of a few few human beings. I knew you were the spawn of the sugar plum fairies and the Waffen SS, but not that your human souvenirs were strewn about like so much dung. Or that your voice was thick and gargly, like pond sputum. Have you tasted me yet with the black hairs of your feet? You lay your tiny lilliput eggs in a basket, Easter fungi. When your shaft swells beneath the yucca trees, you are as puffed up as a tumor or a parachute. You're like a made man I knew in Flatbush, but less Hamish. So little of your unfortunate person has been described. Yet babies wake up daft with terror, and even the gargoyle is in a perpetual state of peak. Shall I compare your intentions to a giant cod, which when split open reveals a severed head? They say your smegma is a delicacy in some countries. So give us a wet kiss, your fruiting body with its lacy gills, your stinger with its sweet paralysis. And I wasn't going to read this one, but Ray mentioned it, and I thought, what the heck, I'm substituting this for something else. Um, Cheney Agonistes. Get us of this. My heart tick-tocking like Captain Hook's clock. Does Tricky wait for any godforsaken crocodile idling and glimmering in the nearby calms? Bah. But now, if I'd been Black, Blackbeard's boatswain, as I should have been, Pan and the lost boys would have long since walked the plank. So no going gentle, I think, into that gute Nacht, as birdshot Harry knows in his pocked hide. Let the press laugh. 
I dressed my mutt Jackson in Lord Vader's duds just to show I get the joke. Bad luck like a fever that will not break in Mesopotamia and here my office is on fire, flames out the windows like red tongues that scream and then fall silent. I have to work for everything I get. Not like that Kennebunkport parrot whose tray of pretzels sates his meager appetite. But we are on the road to victory, nonetheless. To victory. You can say it here. I do my work. I am the man inside my man-sized safe. I tick. I finish up. And he, by the way, does have a man-sized safe. And his offices did catch on fire, which I thought was, was so wonderful. It was, they, 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 in the old, his office is in the old uh, Senate office building, and it was marvelous. There, I, have, I sort of went crazy on the notes on this one. There are notes on some of these poems, and I, for fun, I just, went, I just wrote down everything I could think of about this one, and it's like two-thirds of a page long. So... <clears throat> Two more. Um, This is My Night with George Costanza, which um, I wrote after having a dream, actually, about the the Seinfeld character George Costanza and some lambs. And it begins with an epigraph from William Blake. Little lamb, who made thee? Dost thou know who made thee? Another blue stretch in the black eye galaxy It might have been if groggy lamblets one, two, three were not spilling out into the secret world I share with George Costanza. George and I are met upon a Klieg-lit plane, and I have on my little Bo Peep costume while George leans on his shepherd's crook, and lambs as soft as heaps of sugar dust, as light as new spring snow, are romping in the heavenly bright till all I know, all that I ever need to know, is herding lambs with George Costanza. (laughs) George Costanza's lambs are plump as macaroons and mine as whorls of white meringue. Let those who never gambled with a lamb suck on sweet bones, make wicked plans. I am off now herding lambs with George Costanza. Word to the cynics, you who laugh, so sure no codswallop with lambs could ever make you weep, that George Costanza's nothing but a sham and I, perhaps a wolf, sent out among the sheep to shear their souls. But I say no, and I am half asleep with all the strange authority conferred on sleepers. So you believe that it is good and meet we met and flew our stuttering craft out of the black eye galaxy into a universe so daft that you and I and all the syncopating lambs are one, are one at last with George Costanza. (laughs) And when I was proofing this book, I don't know, those of you who have proofed things know, I'm sure that when you're proofing something, it 
at least for me, it's just the words just literally start to fall apart beneath your eyes. They don't look like words anymore. They they look like something completely strange. How did that word even exist? And I was staring at Costanza, and I and I suddenly realized it was Costanza. So I, that that amused me. Costanza, since he is my muse in this in that poem. And here's uh, a, another from my other muse. Um, so this is the last poem I'm going to read. It's in the voice of Richard Nixon, Dick of the Dead. Sent out the crows to the four corners, did I? Cheney's heart is skipping for me. Swept sandstorm with the dead ones, did I? Rumsfeld's spectral legions know me. Prayed on the White House floor with Henry. Dr. Rice is kneeling for me. Stood at the door with one black candle. Libby's lawyers recognized me. Who sedated Martha Mitchell? I'm in the Lincoln bedroom. Kiss me. (laughs) Strapped on a lie and buggered heaven. Powell's balls are numbered for me. (laughs) Sent out the crows to the lost winds, did I? Cheney's heart is flying toward me. Thank you. draw my inspiration from? Fear? (laughs) That sort of harks back to um, the the 2,000-year-old man. Um, Carl Reiner asks Mel Brooks, what was the primary means of locomotion back in those days? And and Mel says, fear. So... (laughs) Um, I don't know... Um, do you mean in these particular poems or from the beginning or? Well, I mean, I started writing at a time when my family was falling apart and it was kind of um, um, in my teens. And it was kind of a, sort of saved my life, really. Um, and I, I, I need to thank my, my junior high school English teacher who had us write notebooks and that just became a, a way of sort of saving my life. Um, so I guess those those are the roots of it. I don't know if that's what you mean by inspiration. Maybe I'm not answering the question you're asking. What what sort of inspirations did you mean? Well, your, your answer seems to uh, it works fine. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I forgot to repeat the first question, so I'll repeat this one. Why do you use fairy tales that are so obscure, basically? Rather, is, is, that, is that the question? Um, 
I guess I just fell in love with odd fairy tales when I was a kid. My 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 mom had these books that were left over from her childhood called the Book House, and these were books from 1920. And that's probably why I'm crazy about old fairy tales. Um, they had their beautiful books with gorgeous illustrations and few, but really worth it. Um, you can still find these books, by the way, um, in used shops and stuff. And they had you know, enormous range. There were like seven volumes. So there was an enormous range of stories. And I feel like The Twelve Dancing Princesses is kind of like the best fairy tale, feminist fairy tale ever written. It's all about female liberation. It's just crazy wonderful, you know. And then Boots and His Brothers uh, is another one that I I guess the Nixon Tapes comes from. Uh, It's sort of like a male Cinderella. He, you know, he's got two brothers who laugh at him and make fun of him. And yet, of course, he turns out to be the smart one who sticks around and makes the right choices and, you know, that sort of thing. I just, you know, fairy tales were just, you know, the the bread of my childhood. So I guess it, it just, those are the ones that I happen to fall in love with. Yeah. Yes, um, my class were, were members of my family blacklisted. My father was an, uh, an actor um, and a radio person, and he, um, uh, he was not a famous actor, obviously, um, but you know he, he acted on stage quite a bit and, and, and made movies for the army and I think he worked with famous directors making movies in the army. Anyway, when when the um, you know and, and was was a patriot and fought in the Second World War and was wounded and you know fought in Patton's army and all that stuff and then came home, and was um, working for a, the first um, integrated radio station in Washington D.C. when HUAC and all that hit, and so um, the station was um, hounded out of existence. Um, was investigated by several agencies. I mentioned them somewhere in, in some interview. I think it's actually it's on. It's at the Asada Press site, the site that publishes this book. I, I, I interview myself and also wrote a biographical sketch, and in there I, I mentioned that some of the uh, specs on that. But um, so, yes, he was. You know, after that, he was never able to work in um, radio or. He didn't, I don't think he tried to work in show business after that. <clears throat> and radio was how he was making his daily bread. So after that, he became a salesman and sold uh, aluminum lawn chairs and craft materials and things like that. Yeah. So the follow-up question is, so do you think of Dick of the Dead as being a kind of revenge, uh, getting, you know, getting back <laughs> at those guys? That, uh, I, I think, um, I didn't sort of begin it thinking... Revenge, but I guess it has been a good revenge in that in you know Nixon was you know a, sort of a loathed and laughable figure you know in a lot of my life, and um, but also sort of a terrifying one because of you know the power that he'd had um, and the power that he represented more than the power he then had as a fallen man, um, and so I, I guess. Ultimately, it be, you know, I feel like I mastered him rather than the other way around. So I guess, yeah, I turned the power tables so that now Nixon is someone that um, 
I, I'm trying really hard not to write about it anymore <laughs> because I think two books with Nixon on the cover kind of like enough, you know. But um, but yeah, I kind of feel like I guess it was the fulfillment of some kind of revenge fantasy. <laughs> yes, I, I, I've now got him in two poems, don't I? <laughs> yes. I noticed in most of your poems, uh, in the sense of form and also in the language that you use, you seem to be using kind of like a more classical or like, I don't know exactly how to describe it, but um, it like reminds me of, of reading sonnets or like William Blake or something like that. I was just wondering how you uh, combine the sort of language and form that you use with modern, uh, you know, uh, political um, so the question is, if I understand it, that why do I combine? Um, why do maybe why do I why am I using the forms I'm using, and um, why aren't they more modern, perhaps, <laughs> or or um, and why am I combining them with with maybe content that doesn't seem quite appropriate for them? And, and the answer to that might be exactly that, that, you know, I like subverting them. I like emptying out these, you know, like I'm rewriting so many different people, um, you know, and I acknowledge them uh, in the back of the, backs of these books. Sometimes I don't acknowledge them, but those are ones that are so obvious that I figure, you know, anybody knows uh, some reference to Shakespeare or something like that. But I have fun doing it, is all I can say. It's, it's fun for me. Um, I I love the empty vessel, and I love when I love a poem. When I'm obsessed with a poem, the you know I know that I need. I, I do feel apologetic, especially you know I wrote one, you know I hadn't, didn't read this tonight, but a Hopkins uh, travesty, and I felt really bad about that one because it's one of his most beloved, most you know positive poems, and I just inhabited it with this horror, and 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 and, and I guess I'm thinking. Um, It's, it's fun for me. It's just it's something that, that I delight in doing and that I think turns these things on their ear and makes them new, um, I hope. you know. Uh, somebody in Santa Cruz where I was last week said that, that he, he, he wondered if he was, you know, when, when he read Rabbit as King of the Ghosts, was he always going to be thinking of this now? And he thought he would be. You know? and, and so maybe that's a disservice that I'm doing, people. I don't know. Um, does, that, does that address your question? <clears throat> and plus, everybody else is doing do, doing the, the word salad, right? <laughs> so, yes. Anybody else? Yes. I'm wondering if you um, seek advice from other people uh, when writing your poems, or is it only a solitary experience? Do I seek advice in when, when, when writing a poem? Do you, you ask other people? Um, some poems, uh, oh, I guess I should repeat the question. Um, so it's basically, do I, do I consult with other people during the writing of poems, or is it just something I do entirely alone? Well, I am, you know, self-taught, and so, you know, for years I was basically, you know, um, 
not consulting other people much other than my family. Um, and sometimes there are poems. Miss October would be one that just come out and you know, okay, I nailed that one. That's, you know, it's a gift. Um, but most of the time, you know, I'm taking, I'll start off in a notebook and then I'll take something up to the computer and, and so I can really see it. And, um, uh, and sometimes I'll have a question. And when I do, I have a friend, another poet who I basically usually send stuff to, and she usually sends her stuff to me. Um, and so I rely on her enormously because she's insanely, uh, bright and good. And so she will, she will tell me, you know, usually if something's wrong and sometimes she's wrong and I don't agree with her. Um, but, and, and I still show things to my family. And actually my daughter is one of my favorite, you know, critics because she, she's not a, a trained poet or reader, but she, she's bright. And I figure she, you know, if she can get it, then, then other people can. So, so it's not a, not a solitary activity, I would say, mostly. Yes? You say you love the empty vessel. I was wondering if you could just maybe elaborate. Is it that you see the medium poetry as an empty vessel itself, or is that something that um, you're, you're taking to the creative process yourself? Could you just elaborate maybe briefly on well, what I'm, um, So the question is um, that I had mentioned... Um, that the that I loved the empty vessel, and did that mean that I that I thought poetry was an empty vessel, or and could I say more about sort of the, say say again? Um, yes, pretty much that. Just sort of is that I'm just like do you say is that something you hold at the kind of the core of your process, uh, like almost like a, a spiritual approach to to your creative process, or more just something about the form itself? Well, I mean, I, I, I still think more of my poems are not written, you know, as travesties than are. I mean, there are those travesties, but there's more poems that are not written that way. I mean, you know, to say I love the empty vessel, that's just something that came out of my mouth for the first time here tonight. Um, you know, but I was trying to, I was struggling to try to explain why I do what I do. But, um, I, I mean, as I, I guess, you know, Inevitably, it's an empty vessel, and each generation, you know, refills it, right? Um, and that's what I meant when I said in Ray's class that, you know, all literature is built on the on the graveyard of of, of other literature. Um, so that's what makes it exciting, you know, that you're not um, coming into some empty field, uh, and that's why you know reading is so critical much more than, than writing, you know, to, in my view, to, to the practice of poetry. So um, garbage in, garbage out, and, you know, and, and, and things like that. I don't know if that addresses your... That's interesting that it just came out of your mouth for the first time tonight. Yeah. It's I, something that I, it's sort of, it, for me, I have a, a strong relationship to thinking of it as an empty vessel. That's really interesting, because I... Thank you. Thank you. But maybe you should say more about the empty vessel. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> Come up and tell me later about the empty vessel. Um, anybody else? Yes. Have you always wanted to be a poet? Oh, confession time. Um, <laughs> I actually wanted to be a singer um, and uh, begged my mother to, that, to, give me, to let me have lessons, but she was against it. Um, and... Um, 
In fact, she was very against anything I did with music. My grandmother at one point sent, sent us a piano, which was an amazing gift. My mother, who was very ill, sold it, very mentally ill. She sold it. And so I think I took to poetry um, as a form of music that would not make noise um, and <laughs> that you could do um, with a pencil and a piece of paper and nobody could stop you from doing it, and yet it was just as musical, uh, really. And um, so I guess that's, yeah, true confessions. Uh, uh, I think, you know, and, and I think if anybody did a textual analysis of my poems, they would find the word sing an incredible number of times. So I think, I think that's kind of what I'm, I'm doing in my own way. But I wanted to be a poet since I was, since I figured out I could be a poet, which was at 14. So, anybody else? Yeah. Uh, could you tell us something about your, your next project? You read some new pieces. I was just wondering maybe if there's, uh, what source material you're using? Or... Well, as usual, for me, all the poems are sort of differently occasioned, and then I figure out after I've written them what they are. I, the smart people design a project and then write the poems to fit it. I, unfortunately, do it the other way around, where I figure out where the poems come, and I find out which poems are necessary, and then see how, you know, what are the, the interrelationships between them, which means leaving poems out of books and stuff, you know. But... Um, I have a project in mind which may or may not even be poetry, um, something perhaps, I, I don't know if I'm ever going to write it, but if I can find the time, um, I would like to write something about class beginning with my own family, and um, which is, has a very strange and checkered relationship to class, going in and out of various different classes and with strange... Um, strange sojourns here and there. Um, and I, I sort of feel like it could be interesting. Um, I found a couple of uncles of mine who I did not know, who we, whom we did not know. Uh, we knew they sort of vaguely knew that they existed, but, but we did not know where they were buried or anything. I found them in the last few years, and, and that story and how it relates to class and, and, how, and the, the strangeness and the tragicness of that story um, really have me fired up when I, when, I think, when I think about having enough time to do something like that. But of course I apply for an NEA grant with this sort of thing and as usual they'll turn me down, right? So, <laughs> um, okay, anybody else? No, no question to... All right, and thank you again. Thank you.